Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. This is episode 257. We're recording this episode live on September 1st, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hi there, Nick. How's the weather over in the UK? It's nice. It's, it was, it's actually a lovely warm evening. Um, quite enjoying it. It's going to change, though. It's, it's going to change? All right. Well, <laughs> I, I don't even know what the weather's like over here. Anyway, we're not here for the weather. <laughs> we're here to talk about how video games might affect our well-being. And later, we're going to check in with the community uh, and answer some questions about human factors being too specialized, the UX research job market being saturated, and some workarounds for posting restricted work examples. But first... Hey, did you know that we post weekly roundups on our blog? Uh, well, we also post monthly ones too, and that one is out now. So if you missed any of the Human Factors news over the month of August, go check it out on our blog. Barry, I want to know what's going on over at 1202. So at 1202, we um, published the interview with Susie Broadbent, which is looking at applying human factors on the ground. or It's that real-world application of, of the, the methods and procedures that we all read in books and want to do do them properly, but should give us some guidance and some insights into some of the adaptions you have to do to to deal with real world examples. But I've went into a slightly different um, sphere for the next episode, in that I've let somebody else do the interviewing. Now, being a being a bit of a control um, control oriented person that I am, this was quite a difficult thing to do. But Mike Bates, who's a lecturer in human factors at the University of South Wales, um, used our platform to interview Gordon Dupont, the author of what is commonly known as the Dirty Dozen. And if you if you don't know much about them, then firstly, listen to the next episode. But they're really the 12 elements that influence why people make mistakes. And he, he, he developed these years ago, and they've been a common stand, standpoint going forward. So this has been interesting. It's going to be used in two different ways. Firstly, it's going to be used for the channel, uh, for the 1202. But it's also going to be used as university content for Mike to be able to teach his students. So that's been a quite a novel experience for me, which I, which I did last week. So that should be going live a not uh, yeah basically a week on Monday. So quite looking forward to seeing how that looks. Yeah, that'll be awesome to check out. Anyway, let's get to the news. That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, we got a fun one this week. What's our story? This one's brilliant. So. The story is about we may never fully know how video games affect our well-being. So for decades, everyone's worried that video games are bad for us. They encourage violent behavior or harm mental health. These fears have spilled over into policy decisions affecting millions of people. So the World Health Organization added gaming disorder to its international classification of diseases in 2019, whilst China restricts people under 18 from playing games for more than three hours a week in a bid to prevent minors becoming addicted. However, in recent years, a growing body of researchers argued that video games are in fact good for us, improving cognition, relieving stress, and bolstering communication skills. The reality, a new study suggests, is we just simply don't have a good grip on how games affect our well-being, if at all. Research described in the Royal Society Open Science Journal last month found little to no evidence for a causal connection between gameplay and well-being, meaning that spent time, uh, the time spent playing video games had neither a negative nor a positive effect on players' emotional health. Ultimately, despite researchers' best efforts, academics studying games are unlikely to, research, uh, unlikely to reach a solid conclusion on how they affect us, says Yemea Halbrook, a uh, psychology researcher for the uh, Lero Esport Science Research Lab at the University of Limerick in Ireland. They're going to say, whilst we've never been moving, whilst we've been moving away from that slowly over the last decade or so, I don't think there's ever going to be a general consensus the video games have no positive or negative effect, or only a positive effect. It's always going to be those people that say the video games are bad for you and cite biased research. We might never, we might be able to move them in a direction that says games aren't entirely bad, but I don't think we'll ever get to everybody to agree on a singular point, even if it's complete, total fact. People are not like that. So, Nick, what do you think? Are you um, a, a, a gaming junkie? Do you think it affects your health in a way, in a positive or a negative way? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, so let me let me start by saying we took this number out of the blurb, but this wasn't just you know a, a study of college students. This is a huge study. Thirty eight thousand nine hundred and thirty five gamers or players. Um, it's a huge study, and I think 
you're right. I do. I, I, this is self self reflection here, uh, and I'm sure I'm sure everyone can relate in some way, shape, or form. But you know, all things in moderation. Um, and so, to me, it doesn't surprise me that I'm trying to avoid that phrase that you have written down in in your reaction. But <laughs> it, to me, it, it doesn't surprise me that there's inconclusive evidence either way, um, or that there's sort of this disagreement scientifically about which which one might have sort of more which one weighs more you know <laughs> do the positives outweigh the negatives do the negatives outweigh the positives and because of that that's why there's so much stuff around it. I, I i'll get into some of the other points i have later but barry what are your initial thoughts on this yeah i'm going to dive into straight with yay for it depends um and that's kind of the point really isn't it it's i think we've had this piece where gaming has evolved over time um, so gaming, when, when I first started gaming was very simple, the technology was very, very simple. And whereas now we, we get increased complexity increased levels of immersion, um, and, and a whole drive through around, um, cause you've got two different types of gaming as well. You've got gaming on, on, uh, devices that are much simple, but then you, you, you spend, you've got um, platforms that cost an awful lot of money, giving you a high quality gaming experience, um, which, uh, you know, pe people invest in. So it goes down to, can we suspend disbelief um, in, in the level of, of, of the way we immerse ourselves in these games? And what effect does that have on well-being? Because we know that we need to change. Uh, we need to have a bit of a change. We need to have a break from the work that we're doing. Um, and so does, does a little, you know, playing a little game on your phone actually help you do that? Um, and do, or do, you know, do having some games on your computer for, from, you know, simple things like maybe solitaire and things like that, all the way through to uh, multiplayer games, um, that you can play for maybe an hour out of your day. Um, or if I get going, then maybe a few more hours than that. Um, then there's something around it. But really what this is leading to is we need to have another study. There's going to be more studies on this. There's going to be lots of, lots of studies giving us the conclusion of we need another study. Um, we've I've spent a lot of time doing work in the, the blend of live and synthetic training for the military. And inevitably... I've done studies that um, you'll do one study, you come up with it with an answer, and and then somebody else says, "Oh well, we need another study to to do that." And I've kind of done the same study over and over again for for quite quite a number of years. So this sort of feels a bit like that. But I'm pleased that there's some bits out there that on some really like you're quite right to point out that number. That's a significant number of engagement, um, which I think will give us some really good bits to discuss. Yeah, uh, there's so much with this article. Um, I don't even know truthfully where to begin with this. I think maybe what we can start with is just our general experience with gaming and sort of what our habits are. So that way everyone has like a little bit more of a um, frame of reference from where we're coming from with respect to some of these claims here in this article. So for me, uh, you know, I right now I'm an everyday gamer. There are periods of time where I am a once every seven, eight months gamer. Um, right now, I'm an everyday gamer because I just got a new console and I have a bunch of games to catch up on because it wasn't available for a very long time. So um, that's where I'm at. And I've been spending several hours an evening doing so um, over the last, I guess, couple weeks. So that's where I'm at. Um, I, I do sort of know that everything in moderation, right? But that's where I'm at. I'm not. I wouldn't consider myself a hardcore gamer, but uh, definitely one that enjoys gaming. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a fake gamer. <laughs> so I'm less of a hardcore gamer in that in that respect. Yes, we do have a couple of um, couple of platforms, um, but I tend not to use them. I will spend a fair bit of time you know, sort of playing games on my phone, um, things like that. I've got a, a current um, moderation problem with the <laughs> online game uh Valorant at the moment, so I play. So it's, it's one that's one of my go-to games at the moment. I, I will play that say uh, maybe once a day or a couple of times a day. Um, playing that, which is just because it's 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 simple enough for me to engage with. But actually, the the online multiplayer game, is, I think it's it's really slick. But I'm not down to the um, you know picking up a, a gaming platform and spending loads of time on on that anymore. I've sort of gone through the, the that platform phase. I think. Though I'm liking a lot more of the the VR stuff, so like Oculus Rift and and things like that, um, uh, Oculus Quest, sorry, and and sort of I'll experiment with them, but I, I don't think I'm um, 
necessarily going to put out hours of my day to go and to go and engage with it. However, I've done an awful lot of research around it, and like like I said in the the intro bit, the the way that we use serious gaming um, with it for training and things like that, I've I've spent um, probably a couple of decades researching into and and utilizing. So um, I get that might be a reason why I don't actually play games so much is because I've done so much work on them. Then it maybe feels like a bit of a a working task as well as um, as that. So maybe, maybe I'm maybe this is proving to be a bit of a um, a, a reflective session in that in that sense. Oh man, when games feel like work. So I I want to jump into sort of the central crux of this article and really I think why we'll never have that definitive answer or at least in the near future we won't have that definitive answer uh because there's to me there's two things, right? We're talking about mental well-being mm-hmm. as it relates to playing video games and and really is it good or bad for the soul? Is is kind of the question, right? That is the hypothesis and and there are some good things with video games. Obviously, you mentioned some of them in the blurb, but I'm going to go through a list here, right? For me, it's quite a meditative experience, and I've actually talked to my therapist about this. It allows me to clear my mind entirely of the, wor- the world's problems. That's escapism. Um, mm-hmm. But it also allows me to get into a flow. It helps me relax, calm down from the day. Um it also helps with sort of concentration. I can focus in on a task, someone with ADHD, that's really helpful to have something to focus in on and have something to do uh, where you feel passionate about it. Um, it also just makes me feel better. So it can improve your mood. Um, and really, like I said, it, it helps me unwind at the end of the day. I wait till my son's asleep and then I pull out the controller and play for a couple hours. Uh, and it's just decompressing over the day. Um, and so... There's sort of, um, if you think about well-being, there's tiebacks to some of the stuff that we talked about before, like how can we better define mental health? That was an episode that we did. It was episode 236 for anyone who wants to go back and listen to it. But really, we're talking more about mental health in in a sense of um, sort of exercising your mind rather than thinking of it as like a patch, right? So, Mm -hmm. so. Uh, to, a patch to solve the problem. And so I think when you're thinking about sort of this um, mental well-being with video games, it is sort of the same thing. You got to exercise your mind and control to be able to play and experience these things like flow, relaxation, concentration, but not become so addicted to it that it it starts to have some of those detrimental effects. There's also other mental well-being things that can sort of stick out here. I'm thinking like empathy, compassion for non-player characters or player characters for that matter. Um, you mentioned that a lot of games nowadays are very sort of uh, narrative driven and you can have these emotional connections to characters. Uh, I'm playing a, a story right now that I'm feeling pretty connected to the characters. They spend a lot of time developing these relationships and you're like, oh, okay, I feel like, you know, I really know these people because you spend so much time with them. In fact, we have another episode that you go check out uh, on AIs being companionship. Um, that was episode 240. We were talking about AI girlfriends. Uh, and so go check that out. But that's the positive side, right? Yeah. There's also this whole other negative side. Barry, I know you have like, you've done studies on this. I want to, I want to get your opinion on this. Yeah. I just wondered, how is your AI girlfriend? Is she, Okay. Oh, I haven't. I haven't talked to her in months. When did we do that episode? It's, it's uh... <laughs> that's, that's way back now, isn't it? Um, but you might go. One night stand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some people would be quite happy about that. Um, but you're right. There is this. The, a lot of things have been highlighted as as, as an outcome of using video games um, and, and and sort of basically online gaming. And some of that is around things like you know you get that enhanced hit of dopamine. Uh, when, particularly when you're doing um, games that require a lot of um, activity and um, reaching goals and, and doing doing that type of thing, so you you get that dopamine addiction. It's been you know if, if you're spending all your time on your um, insert proper um, gaming 
um, platform here. Um, if you're if you're spending all your time on your gaming platform, then how does that affect your your relationship, your real world, or what people class as real world relationships now with your partners, with your um, housemates, if you're your students, with your family, with your children, and things like that. There is not um, your AI girlfriends. Not your AI girlfriend. I think I think they will be fine. Um, though, the, the, at what point do they start bugging you? Um, you've 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 got some physical health related risks as well because you are doing most of these sedentary. You know, you're sat in. I mean, they get you know, gaming chairs are getting much better and things like that. And um, you can get you can spend a lot more money on doing that type of thing. And the ability to get some sort of articulation at home, so like moving platform and that is, is becoming cheaper, but it's, I would still wouldn't say it's accessible. But you'll get your you're largely sitting down playing these things. So you're not getting out and you're you're not doing exercise as such, which is, you know, we all agree as much as I don't do it as much as I should, um, is a good thing to be doing. Um you can get this exposure to environments that you are not necessarily going to get exposure to, so toxic environments and, and things like that. Um and while you're, whilst you're doing this, are you doing it the most appropriate time? Because actually, if you're meant to be studying or you're meant to be working, or in my case, maybe you should be writing a report um, and something like that, and you're, um, I'll just take five minutes out, you you crack on and, and you your five minutes ends up being an hour, ends up being, I'll just do one more, two hours. And if you can't um, bound it properly, then it can end up being a problem. And it's it's almost like anything else as well. Is why are you using the gaming? Is it is it all the positive stuff that you alluded to earlier, Nick? Around you know you're you're using it to improve your mental health and things, or are you just trying to escape the real world? Are you trying to do things that just doesn't don't exist at the moment? So there's an interesting bit where people will point out a lot of these problems. You could argue that actually do, is that down to gaming or is that down to um, just just the people who are doing it? And actually, if it, if the gaming wasn't there, then there would be another outlet for them. Um, because before gaming came along in such a way, the same was said for actual just TV of itself. You know, the use of like violent movies, uh, the, the, the greater use of sex within movies and things like that. People were highlighting that with pretty much exactly the same same arguments. And so... There is a there is something bigger at play there that um that that means that there is there is a narrative around us being um sat down and basically taking in screen based um screen based engagement. Yeah, I think I think the big difference and the thing that scares some people um is the interactivity, right? The the TV's passive. Uh video games are very active. And so there's this concern that um you know, you play violent video games, and and I made the comment in our pre-show that I live here in the states, and you could go and uh, the Second Amendment's a thing. Anyway, so that's that's a concern, right? And is it a valid concern? It it depends. It depends on the person. I think ultimately that's what we're coming down to: is that this largely depends on the individual, their tendencies, and how they react to certain stimuli i.e. video game in this in this circumstance. And so it's like, should you regulate it in some way, shape or form to where more addictive personalities are time based? And I think you can sort of see some of this stuff with like parental controls. Uh, parents are able to go in and limit how much uh, their their kids can play um, in, in a day. You can say, OK, only one hour or two hours or whatever, you know, your threshold is. Um, you know, I do want to I do want to follow up on one thing that you were talking about with the negatives here, the toxic environments. And I want to elaborate a little bit on what that can do for somebody's mental health. There's uh, you go into comment section on any YouTube video or um, you hear, you know, somebody on the other end saying really terrible things about your mother. Um, there's there's consequences to that. Um at some point, do you do you fight back with those same words because it's easy and that behavior has been modeled for you? Or um, do you sort of engage in the behavior where you report that? And that's more um, that needs to be sort of easily. A, you, you should be able to do that very easily. Right. Because the barrier to entry uh, for that should be less than the barrier entry to. <laughs> reciting those things back to the other person or anything like that. And so um, those toxic cultures can really sort of 
over time, if you're in a, in a group of these things, it can have group think effect on you. And that's no good either. Cause then you're just creating more of the problem. So just wanted to follow up on that. There's a couple extra things that we can dig into here as it relates to, um, mental health. And I, I was starting to allude to it a little bit with parental controls, but if you think about the way that the youngsters are growing up these days, um, they're actually using video games as a social hub. They're, they're using video games as a way to socialize with other people. It's kind of like a bar, but for children, instead of alcohol, you're looking at uh, epic shoulder pads of friendship or, you know, whatever. So really we're looking at these, um, these situations where you have children engaging with each other in these sometimes collaborative, sometimes competitive environments. And, you know, from, from what I've seen, uh, anecdotal evidence, of course, it's pretty healthy in most cases. Like it's just a part of life that they've experienced. So you have these kids just playing Minecraft with other kids, building stuff together, uh, socializing. And then you also have, you know, the, the ones where maybe they're competing against each other in like a fighting game or something. And then you have sort of this, this mutual respect for each other afterwards. Um, and that is healthy. That is healthy. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's where my mind is at. Like, I think, I'm leaning definitely good thing. And I don't know if that's biased because I game myself and I, anyway, where but do you want to jump also, next? Well, I mean, just to almost continue with that to a certain extent, the, it's, it goes back to the evolution of gaming as well. So when you looked at gaming in the say mid nineties, they were all sort of arcade based one-to-one -one fighters. You know, there, there wasn't very, the team play wasn't really a thing because the technology did, just didn't make it work. When you looked at the, um, is it the MMRPG, so the, the mass multiplayer um, games, they were very script-driven. There were um, The graphic fidelity was really low. You couldn't actually talk to anybody. It was very you know, text-driven and things like that, even as you evolve through the 90s and the, and the early 2000s. The games that you get now um, have, have got so much more facility within them. A, that the, the fidelity of the game and the, and the tasks that you're trying to largely complete are much um much broader so you're not just going from you know starting point a walking across um, the horizontally across the screen beating up a boss and get, getting a goal that the the game is richer um but also you you've got this idea of, of, of a communications platform underpinning it all which is largely based on voice so you can actually talk to each other um you can you can be collaborative you can work together to to achieve the common goal you and you can um share opinions and then as you quite rightly say more people are using it as a platform to discuss and maybe the game is slightly in some respects turning into an aside where mm -hmm. they're, they're actually talking about it people are streaming their own gaming performance on on um, other platforms um and sharing how to do things so the whole game environment uh, has evolved and when i was doing work around um digital native digital immigrants and, and that type of thing and another category of people subcategory of pe people came up which was gaming native um or game natives where people who are um who sort of grow up and are just playing games and are so used to that are game native people more like me who maybe come and try and play games and, and engage with things like that are more gaming gaming immigrants in that respect um but you, it's it's becoming an evolution and then there will be i i suspect when we um the 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 augmented reality the uh, virtual reality games do because they're still sort of on that brink of being brilliant but they're not quite brilliant yet when they <laughs> become brilliant then i think you'll have then another evolution again um so then you'll be looking at ready player one you know that, that type of uh, that type of interaction so um yeah I, I, it's interesting to see the the evolution we've seen exactly that same evolution with social media we've seen the same evolution with the internet in general and it's all about connectivity and talking um, and we're just doing it on a much bigger and broader basis. We're not bounded by the physical um, the physical constraints that we've, we've had historically, like your neighbours, you know, the people who live in your street, the people who go to your school, the people who go to your workplace. Um, you've got opportunities to engage on a much broader basis that we've just never had before. Yeah, I think that's right. And you're also, um, like you were saying, the community is growing. And I think you're seeing this increasing number of spaces designed around these in-person hubs for gaming right you have gaming cafes gaming bars lounges uh, other social events where you have people in the same 
physical space doing things. And you you mentioned the metaverse too. This is happening in in the metaverse. It's happening in a virtual environment as well, where you are designing these spaces with the intent of um, having this interaction with uh, others socially. And so, yeah, we're we're seeing this sort of huge shift from being a single person experience to, uh, I mean, we, the shift has already happened, but even more so, I think, um, as games become more ubiquitous, you're sort of seeing that shift even further into incorporating it into a part of our uh, everyday lives, not just for the people who consider themselves gamers, but even for people who, um, you know, might just play, I say just play something on on mobile like Candy Crush or whatever, I consider those people gamers. That is a video game that you're playing in your hand. And I think gatekeeping those types of people is bad and obviously toxic. But when you think about those type of people having sort of um, a words are friends with another was another really big one a couple years ago, 10 years ago. 10 years ago uh <laughs> like you know you go uh-oh <laughs> uh yeah anyway you have you have these other uh sort of highly um social uh games that that sort of have these connections that you can build now i, I want to take a minute to to talk about sort of social opinion and how that has changed over time because um you know this is we have a comment on our chat tonight from lakalecha on twitch um they say, I'm excited for the main story this week. I'm actually doing some work on video games and effect on social opinions. Uh, this is more of a video game as a social activist medium and its effect on political opinions in the short term. It's been interesting. I'd be interested in hearing more about the violence work. So that's uh, in reference to a comment that Barry was making in the pre-show. Do you want to talk first about the violence work and then we can kind of go up uh, and do the social stuff? Yeah, so from... Um... <sighs> This more hits us more in the in the engineering side of things as well. It's around how do we use this type of um, this type of engineering, um, this gaming engineering for for training. And so we've done some uh, fair amount of work, or the military's done a fair amount of work uh, around the world around utilizing um, gaming technologies to train people um, to to perform warfighter capabilities. Be that pilot, be that a soldier, be that sailor um all them different things so we everybody will be aware of things games that that allow you to be um within a flight simulator with you know or when um be being uh, part of a special ops team and things like that all of them have got such a high level of fidelity now that there's a lot there's a lot of people ro rolling up to um recruitment centers who already know how to use weapons for example they've never actually touched one but because of the inbuilt gameplay that they do, they already know how to um, utilize a weapon. They, may, they might have a, a, a really good understanding already of tactics um, uh, or it, how, to, how to utilize a tank, how to fly the basics of an aircraft, how you would um, do that type of thing. And to the point that when we've done studies around um, what do people expect when they come and join the, join the Air Force, for example, there was always that common misconception that um, everybody wanted to join the Air Force to fly. And so, because historically, that's what that's what people would do. They, they want to become a pilot. They want to fly an aircraft. They don't want to fly these simulators. That's just silly. But then now that's all, that's all switched. The people who are joining, they've, they've generally been gamers one way or another in, in, their, in their time. And so they're coming and say, whoa, whoa, why, why do I fly an aircraft first? Why don't I learn on the simulator when I can make mistakes, get it all wrong and all that type of stuff, and then go and fly the aircraft when I've got a level of competence? And it's now you're getting that social acceptance of that going all the way through, and so there's that there's there's a whole lot of that going on. Which um, yes, it's 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 learn using gaming to basically deliver violence one way or another, um, but it's an interesting way of of using that, and and there's no reason why that can, that that can't be used in in other domains as well, such as nuclear safety, like learning how to control your uh, nuclear reactor, or we've seen games um, around surgery, so you know doing slightly funnier games around like doing different types of surgery but actually you get some quite serious ones that sort of just take you step by step how to do um you know transplants and things like that we could be pushing this type of technology in, into that type in, into that type of domain making people who come to learn you know to become doctors and things like that actually with maybe some some level of skill already yeah you know 
this is we're getting into sort of different from the social aspect. So let's loop around mm-hmm. back to that. But I, I want to continue this thread as you're talking about training and education, because there's some really interesting things going on here. There's sort of this procedural based approach um, versus a knowledge based approach where you have sort of training somebody how to do something step by step. Right. That might be, um, you know, how to, how to fly a plane in a flight simulator. Like you said, you know, you flip this switch, then you flip that switch. You look at these things and then you hit the throttle. Right. So that's procedural. Um, and so when somebody gets into a plane, they'd know to do all those things. Then mm-hmm. there's the knowledge based approach where you can also mix and match these. By the way, this is not mutually exclusive. You also have things where, um, you know, you might learn about some controls in an airplane. I'm going to keep with that example. But you also might have other types of games that inform you how to do something, right? You can see, um, you know, educational games out there. These things for children, like learning numbers, letters, shapes, music, math, all these things are, um, they can, you can do them through games. In fact, you know, my son has a toy that sings at him um, and plays like a shapes game on, on a remote. You also have other types of games that engage, um, that, that engage people in certain circumstances. So we did a, a, a study or not a study. A, we did an episode on a study that was looking at in-flight safety instructions um, and how that communicates process and education to the passengers of that plane. It told them a process. So I'm jumping back and forth here between knowledge and process, but ultimately what we're looking at here is that gaming using games as a medium for training and education actually works best when you have some sort of engagement from the player rather than just sort of this passive instruction, which is why it's such a powerful thing when you have that interaction. I alluded to it at the top. TV is passive. Video games are active. You, It's an active experience where you are interacting with this world. And so if you if you have <clears throat> sorry, if you have these um, you're seeing more and more domains accept video games into the way the process by which they do things. Right. I mentioned the airplane safety training video. If you want to go listen to that episode 214, I've listed a bunch of episodes that you can go back and reference because all of them tie into this one episode. It's a nice theme. Um, you also have some of these space simulators, flight simulators. We simulations are basically games. Come on, let's let's be honest here. And then um you know, you can do you can do fun things in them that you can't do in real life, like fly a Cessna upside down and uh, a, a 737 upside down, all that stuff. Um, you also have these other um, you also have other applications of it where maybe a workplace will have a game night focused around um, a team building exercise. And you have a game there that encourages teamwork or um, encourages some like friendly competition, interaction, socialization uh, amongst their their workers, right? So I'm thinking something like the Jackbox games where you have everybody sort of engaging with um, a centralized platform and, and there's sort of this social element where you need to be um, engaged in what's going on. You're, they've hijacked your phone and so you can't like look at your phone while you're doing any of this. You're forced to be engaged in that situation. And so there are other applications out there that are looking into this. So I wanted to bring all that up. Do you have any comments on that before we head over to the social side? Because I do want to make sure we loop around to that comment. No, no, let's go. Let's go and hit the um, the, the social side. Because otherwise, I think we'll we'll never get out of here because there's so much. <laughs> there's so much I, I could just keep on talking about. But uh, yes, let's hit, let's hit the social. It is great, right? So we we talked a little bit about sort of this overarching um, perception from the public on video games. But then this comment here specifically is looking at social activism within video games. So you have like propaganda posters in, in war games or something along those lines. Um, or, you know, you have <clears throat> more and more companies taking a stance now on um, sort of progressivism, social justice, that type of thing. Like, for example, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a modification for a Spider-Man game that removed pride flags from the game. And the the host of the mod site basically said, no, we're not doing that. We're taking that mod down because that's, you're an idiot. Don't do that, right? So like, so you have um, more and more of these types of situations happening where you have um, 
social activism within the game. And this also opens up the discussion for is video games art? It absolutely is. Let's not let's not let's squash that right away. <laughs> but that art then um, conveys sort of the collective vision of the people who worked on it. And so when you have those pride flags in Spider-Man, that is a collective decision from that studio, from that company that have put those in there as an active choice to express their support for the LGBTQIA plus community. Like that is, that is so cool to me that that can happen now. Um, and it's just, it's, it's sort of combating this toxic environment, maybe encouraging it in some cases, but I, I, I would like to hope that it's combating that toxic environment more than contributing to it. Do you have any thoughts on that, Barry? I kind of hijacked that conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I just wondered when I was going to get get be able to get a word in because the um, no because you're right, but it goes back to kind of what we said before in in terms of the way that games have evolved. So you've got the game itself, you know, it's got a narrative, it's got a background, and there is lots of opportunity for the um, the game designers, the game developers to put their messaging, whatever their messaging is, um, and liberally put it through. Now they can either put it, you know very physically in front of you or there's they've got opportunities for some, for more subliminal messaging and things like that um about how would you think so that's that's at one level where they've they've got an ability to because i guess games are more storytelling now as well is that, that we expect more of a narrative we expect a bit of um a bit of immersion therefore they can they have an opportunity to to be able to do that and whilst i haven't seen it yet how long is it going to be before we get um like say campaign sponsored games or campaign bolt-ons for um for large multiplayer games where the the a, a campaign maybe for i don't know a presidency or something could um encourage you know sponsor a bolt-on and it becomes part of that part of the narrative um so that's sort of the one half then the other half is as, as we've said already it is a communications platform and so from that perspective We've there's a lot of work being done around how does social media work with with political campaigning, um, or any any sort of really campaigning around um, social justice or anything like that. So how does social media work in that respect? This is now another platform where it's almost exclusively younger members of society who is the hardest demographic to be able to message to currently. Um, this opens itself up as a as an ideal platform to be able to in and, and get messaging to that that type of that cohort that but that bunch of individuals so i don't think it's necessarily being leveraged very much at the moment in this respect but i don't think it's going to be a million miles away as soon as people realize how to leverage it and that's the key to it to a certain extent because if you just have if you just rock up into a game uh that you probably never played before and start throwing out messages of pro such and such a candidate then you're going to be called out for what you are and largely ignored and probably booted off the platform it's the how you do it in a more subtle way um, that, that yields greatest results. And we saw that all the way through the social media side of things. And there's some interesting bits been done around sort of like what um, President Obama did around when when they took made great use of text messaging and then initial social media and things like that. And that was a real revolution in of itself. This is possibly that next level of, of revolution about how to how to leverage this type of stuff. So it'd be interesting to see how that how it develops. Yeah, I I, I kind of want to end it there. Do you have any other loose ends that you want to talk about before we... I have one. And really, okay. the, that's, it's, all, it's all about what, what we call Uncanny Valley. And, and that is the basically that, that element of disbelief that you have around uh, the, the engagement. The game that you're playing, does it, does it respond to real life? Does it, is it around real life? And most people, when they're playing games, recognize they're playing games because this thing of, of the Uncanny Valley, that they know that they're playing a game because they're not totally immersed in it they recognize there's a difference and that will always be the dividing line between gaming and real life the closer the the the, the more we shrink that and, and make that disappear and that's more around your vr gaming and things like that then i think that's when we're going to start hitting different types of issues um but at the moment that still exists pretty much everywhere and um that's going to be the big, biggest challenge to hit yeah my sort of closing thought on this um and the reason why it all depends so much and why this is such a significant study i think that's that's kind of what i want to end with um first off i'll mention what games they used so they used animal crossing new horizons 
uh, Apex Legends, EVE Online, Forza Horizon 4, Gran Turismo Sport, Outriders, and The Crew 2. Not so much the significance of what games they chose to use, but the significance of the data source that they got them from. So this data actually originated and was provided directly from the game's publishers, which is really a, a, a hard thing to do when you think about it. Um, the vast majority of video game studies rely on these self-report measures from um, from gamers. And so this is hard data that they're getting directly from the publishers. And um, that is that is awesome. And that's why this is so significant is because we're really seeing different patterns from different types of people. Mm-hmm. And we just, it depends. All right. So <laughs> with that, we just want to thank our patrons this week for selecting our news topic. And thank you to our friends over at MIT Tech Review for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups and our monthly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, sincere, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you truly keep the show running. You keep it going. I want to take a minute to talk about what Patreon supporters help pay for behind the scenes. Because I don't think it's immediately obvious. You know, we have we have uh, we put out a thing every week. It's an audio platform, but we also have video. And and so we need to pay for the tools in which we use to record the video and distribute that video. But we also use the video as the recording. Uh, my cat is making a cameo right now, a catio on the video right now as we speak. So if you were to watch us on those platforms, you could see my cat. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it also helps us host the the podcast itself that that costs money. Uh, we have a website that we need to keep up and running. Um, we have automation behind the scenes that really helps us keep track of some things. We have a whole lab that you're supporting, really. Um, and there's products and services that assist with some of the audio and video production that we have going on here behind the scenes. All that to say, those who financially support us are really financially supporting us. There's a lot that we have to take care of uh, and and that help truly helps like a lot. So thank you. All right. I've I've groveled enough for your money. So let, I think we should get into the next part of the show. It came from It came from That's right. This is the part of the show called It came from. We search all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. If you find any of these answers useful or if you like this cat that keeps so lovingly headbutting me, uh give us a like wherever you're watching to help other people find this content. Uh we got we got three of them up tonight. Um a rarity, but we have a couple of them from the Human Factor subreddit. So we're going to go with those first. This first one here is from DXBYDY on the Human Factor subreddit. They write, is Human Factors too specialized? They write, I'm, I'm currently an undergrad studying mechanical engineering, and I'm super interested in Human Factors. I've been talking to a few of my professors to ask them their advice on my graduate school plans, and one of them told me she thinks Human Factors is, quote, too specialized of a field, and I should pick something, quote, more general in order to avoid limiting myself too much. I thought this was kind of strange, since not only is the whole point of graduate school to specialize in something, but Human Factors is such a versatile field that it applies to literally every industry. I'm curious as to what people think uh, is human factors really too specialized. Barry. I think your professor needs to go out and do some, their own research. Um, no, your professor's wrong, quite frankly. Um, you, uh, 
human factors isn't too specialized. It is a unique field, but that's because, and we were sort of alluding to this in the in the pre-show, that um, the human factors is one of these topics that literally reaches out into every single aspect because uh, aspect of engineering, of science, of all that type of things, because it is that interface between us and technology, and you know that it exists everywhere. Um, you can apply it. And in fact, it's, it, I would say it goes even further. That's why we struggle to define it really well, is because it is so ubiquitous. Um, so yeah, um, short short form of that is yeah, they're, they're wrong. And and human factors is is um, a great thing to study. And I thoroughly encourage you to go and do that. They're very wrong. They're very wrong. Um, it's it's the whole. It is the sort of psychology engineering jack of all trades quote right it's jack of all trades uh master of none but oftentimes better than a master of one and i think when you talk about specialties yeah no it's not it's not super specialized there's obviously an underlying set of principles and methodology that you follow um and understanding about the world that you subscribe to but you can take that and apply it to any sort of domain process procedure the five p's the six p's whatever the p's are uh process products procedure all that stuff um and so no it's not specialized it's it's <laughs> it's the opposite it's completely the opposite um yeah anyway nothing else to say on that one let's get into this next one here <laughs> uh, uh this one's by peko yama on the human factor subreddit, they write, is UX research saturated? I'm an undergraduate student, and I'm planning on focusing my concentration on human factors. I heard about UX design, and it seemed really exciting and something I might enjoy as a career. However, I'm a bit worried that it's a bit more saturated because all the people who are doing boot camps for it. I do plan to go to graduate school, but I'm just conflicted if this is the route I possibly want to go to due to the saturation and unsure how to really stand out in that case. Would you agree that the market is saturated and is it going to get harder or more competitive in the future? Should I be worried or am I overthinking it? Barry? Overthinking it. Next. Yep. Um, no, I think, <laughs> so give that the consideration it deserves. So firstly, UX and human, so in my mind, UX is a subset of, of human factors. Human factors is a very broad domain. So if you're going to go and do, um, look at human factors, you will learn about a lot more than just I've said just UX is a larger domain in in of itself, um, but with the HF around it, there is a broad range of stuff you can go into, and that will allow you to go into a broad range of industries. It, it's not really we've discussed the things around boot camps and stuff before. Boot camps for me give you a, a good introduction to things, but they don't necessarily give the depth and breadth of something to give you a, a true mastering of um, of the art, as it were. So. If you're if you're looking to do a, um, a a degree in it, then you will get much more than just what a boot camp can give you. Um, will it become saturated? No, I mean in the UK there are literally you know, there's loads and loads and loads of jobs out there for human factors people. We've just thrown um, a new we've opened up three positions um, ourselves, and we're we're a very small consultancy. There's an almost every HF consultancy I know is crying out for HF people at the moment. In the States, I'm fairly sure it's it's, it's not too dissimilar um, because the nature of, of the way, way things are, but I'm sure Nick will give us an update in a second. But the um, fundamentally, there are there's loads of jobs out there. I can't see it going any other way but 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 up in that respect. Um, and, and it's a fantastic domain to come and work in, so get on with your degree and come and join us. Nick, what's it like in the US? Yeah. You're right. I mean, it, there's plenty of jobs out there. Uh, I will say that sort of the um, competition is at the senior level right now because you have this mm -hmm. entry level. I wouldn't say saturation. It's um, people think they can get away with those boot camps. And I wanted to comment on that. Boot camps aren't a way to kickstart. It, it, it can kickstart. You're sure. It's it's not. It's like. I don't know. It, it's. <laughs> It's like taking a weekend course and expecting to be a surgeon. You can't. I, I, I'm comparing us to surgeons. That's not true. Uh, it's like we way better than know. surgeons. <laughs> no, I mean, good, but I'm No, keep it in. Keep it in. We're. Uh, I mean, like, look. Here's the thing. It's like it'll get you so far, but it's 
the experience that you have doing something, working on projects or working in a tangential field with transferable skills, that can also be an, another way to sort of break in. Um, and so you you have actually a lot of people doing that right now where they're trying to transfer these skills into UX because there is a demand. Uh, and that demand is quite lucrative in some cases. Uh, so that's why a lot of people are transitioning to it. And so over time, yeah, we're, we're probably going to fill up because you have um, you have folks who who want to get into the field and are excited about it. But then you also have people who are getting discouraged about it and want to leave. So UX is a burnout. Like UX, the field is a burnout. Human factors is a little different, um, but UX can be a burnout for some people just based on the way that companies handle it. Yeah. I mean, UX at the moment, I think it's fair to say it, it's trendy at the moment. Um, yeah. It's really popular. It's There's something about it that's, that feels really pizzazz and really, really cool in that respect. Um that will get taken over by something else trendy at you know maybe five ten years down the line um because that's just the nature of the way the domains evolve and, and that type of thing but so specifically around ux i think that yes you're you're right it's um it's a high not high turnover but there's certainly um um it's almost explosive in the way that it's it, mm -hmm. it's sort of developed and gone um but that's why you know definitely go down the hf route you will get ux in there but you will learn the broader domain yeah. All right. Let's get into this last one. This one's fun. Uh, this one's by Hyper Hoshiko on the user experience subreddit. They're saying working around or work around posting work examples. I'm looking to add more UX to my portfolio, though I'm not allowed to post work examples from my job. Could I work around this by using pseudo examples, such as saying this is a website that promotes X, Y, and Z, but change the name and designs as well? Barry, how do you, and I think this is a, a larger question. How do you get around NDAs or instances where you can't necessarily share what type of thing you're working on, i.e. defense uh, with classification issues and that type of thing. How, how do you get around that issue? Um, it's not easy. Don't take I mean, my answer. No, no, and, and I'm not going to because I think in certainly a lot of the work that I've done, you know, you're talking not just about uh, what's on a screen, but the physical aspects and, and you know, the, the trials that you've done and, and things like that. It's quite, it can be quite difficult to do. Um, Sometimes, I mean, I've worked on some projects that, you know, there's, there's some stuff in the public domain. So that's fine. So, and it's, it's, you know, some of the examples that we talk about on this podcast, I have to sort of box clever with with what I'm saying. So I can say that I've worked on like platforms like the Harrier, the Tornado, the Typhoon, things like that. But I can't really go into too much detail about exactly what. Um, so you, you can describe the type of things that you've done. So I would describe maybe the processes I've been through to get there, the, um, the, the, the types of systems that maybe I've developed. So I've developed a lot of mapping displays. I've developed a lot of communications displays. Um, and so you can allude a lot from that, but I can't exactly say, look, he's the exact design document I wrote, uh, because it tends to be classified and, and well, I guess in the U S we all know about classified documents at the moment uh, as, as well. So let's not worry too much about that, but you know, so there is, there is ways of talking around things. And I think you get more used to doing that, the more, the more you do it. Um, and you understand what it is, you know, what, what it is that you can talk about, what it is that you can't, um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't have a huge amount of experience because most jobs I've gone for um, have been in the same sort of domain. And so you can talk about it to a certain extent. Um, if I was going to go to an absolutely new domain, I sort of tried to do that once. And <laughs> I'll be honest, I kind of crashed and burned um, because it was so difficult to try and translate what I did, even though there was a direct translation um i couldn't really translate it because of the nature the, the the defense nature going into a completely civilian environment so it's difficult but i think in maybe the ux world you've got a bit more insight than i have nick yeah and i think that's right so first off i want to say being able to show something isn't necessarily what i'm looking for if I'm going to hire you, I'm looking for you to describe your process and you to describe uh, how you would approach problems. And I think that's probably the better way to approach that whole question uh, is talk about process, talk about uh, 
challenges that you've encountered without sort of, um, if you can talk about them under NDA, some NDAs are really strict, although I haven't, you know, I haven't ran into anybody who signed an NDA that said, I can't talk about my UX process. Um, I've, mm. I've met, uh, I, I know a couple of people who say they can't talk about how a company has established a process, but their individual process is, is kind of, uh, fine because everyone kind of subscribes to the same <laughs> thing. Um, if you insist on showing a, a work example, you could always replace the images. So I don't remember where I saw this or heard this. Uh, somebody who designs a porn site. Um, obviously, you can't put that on your portfolio. But what they did to get around that issue was they replaced every thumbnail with a cat picture and every video with a cat video, um, at least to show the final design. So that way you can see what type of work they did. And they talked about it from a cat video perspective. They just translated it into something else that's a little bit more palatable for a job interview. <laughs> so, uh, you know, take that for example, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, that's it for it came from. And now just one more thing. Uh, talk about one more thing. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? So exciting news this week. The Ergonomist um, has been published and it landed on my doorstep and it has an article in it that's talking about sentient AI. And the oh, reason that that's, sounds... that's exciting, doesn't that sound a bit familiar to you? Familiar, yeah. Is it? It's because we had an episode on it on, um, on a few weeks ago. And out of that, where we talked about um, Google's AI and whether it actually truly got sentient or not, I worked with Dr. Mark Sajan and, and worked up an article on it as part of the um, AI and digital healthcare special interest group. And lo and behold, and okay, useless for the podcast, but for great on the video, um, the article landed and it all looks there and it's got um, in it, we mention um, Human Factors Cast and the our illustrious leader, Nick Rome himself, um, as inspiring um, the article. And um, yeah, so it's nice to see almost a, a good linkage together of the stuff that we've talked about, inspiring another conversation, and and driving out an article for the um, for the uh, human factors community to read. Well, I got to be honest, Barry, I didn't have uh, you inflating my ego on my human factors cast bingo card tonight. So, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, no, that's super cool. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to getting my copy. Um, my one more thing this week. Uh, oh, boy, am I excited to talk about this. So I am investing now in political futures. Uh, <laughs> and what that means um, is that you uh, are essentially putting in stakes uh, to say that one outcome will happen over another. Uh, and so I have put down some money over the last couple of weeks uh, on Biden's approval rating. And uh, the Alaska special election. Mm -hmm. And let's just say that the odds for uh, the way it works is that you buy in, you know, anywhere from one cent to 99 cents. Uh, and let's just say they were very, very low um, buy in for them to go a certain way. Right. Biden's approval number, a certain number and uh, the special election going to um, Mary Patola, who's a Democrat in a very, very red, well, not very red state, but Trump plus 10 district uh, state. And so I thought, you know what, there's a long shot. It's it's very it, low cost of entry. I thought, you know, I'll, I'll throw around 20 bucks or so, uh, maybe a little more. But <laughs> with that, with that, such low stakes. Um, well, yesterday, uh, Mary Portola won in um, in Alaska, and so and Biden's approval rating made it to where I thought it was going to be, and so I got an eight hundred percent return. <laughs> which nice, is insane. Yeah. That is a lot of that's a lot of percentages. Um, and so it's it's so rewarding because a couple weeks ago I talked about how I've been keeping up with politics so intimately. Um, it's almost a sickness at this point, but um, because of that. Uh, I'm able to sort of sense the direction in which things are going. And I feel like I have more of a understanding about that than I do about stocks. And so anyway, I'm going to go with this. Ooh. That's my one more thing this week. And that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, enjoy some of the discussion about virtual environments 
and what kissing might do for your mental well-being in VR, maybe go check out that episode, uh, our most popular episode, episode 246, Let's Kiss in VR. Comment wherever you're listening, what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, wherever you're at right now, you can like the video or leave us a five-star review. Uh, two, you can tell your friends about us. That word of mouth really helps us grow. If you're sitting by the water cooler and uh, talking about Human Factors, let them know. Uh, hey, this Human Factors podcast, pretty good. Uh, or if you have the financial means to, um, we will take your money. It's it, we're, it'll help support the show. I told you all the things it goes towards. And honestly, um, it, we truly are thankful for that. <laughs> As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to get your gamer tag? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you can find me on the social media at Baz underscore K. Um, or if you want to come listen to some interviews with um, key people in the Human Factors universe, then come find me on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.